after the news at 6.30 p.m. You're tuned in to listener-supported KPFA and KPFB Berkeley, KFCF 88.1 Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3 p.m. Up now, cover to cover. Stay tuned. Poet to Poet series. I'm your host, Nina Serrano, and today my guest is Carolina de Robertis. She's written a new novel called Perla, and we're going to discuss it today. Welcome, Carolina de Robertis. Thank you so much. It's a delight to be here. Perla is one of those novels that's a page-turner. It kept me awake all night and then sneaking back to the book during the day when I'm supposed to be doing other things. It was so compelling. And at the same time, it was dealing with one of the major problems we're facing in the world today, which is the problem of the dirty wars of the 70s coming back and slapping us in the face. Would you talk a little bit about your theme Yes, I'd be delighted. So this book is set primarily in Argentina, in Buenos Aires, and um, it opens in 2001. There's a young woman who was raised in a military family who discovers a mysterious uh, guest in her living room, and his arrival forces her to come to terms with her family's history, with the Dirty War specifically in Argentina, and um, the disappearances that occurred under the dictatorship. Um, so as a sort of Cliff notes to that history. Um, in Argentina, there was a military dictatorship from 1976 to 1983, and under that dictatorship, it's estimated that about 30,000 people were disappeared. Um, they were kidnapped by their own government, tortured, and killed while their loved ones never found out what happened to them. They went to work and never came home. They just sort of disappeared. And um, this is incredible history uh, that is still under the surface of so many people's lives and is a national wound in Argentina. And also in Chile, there's much of this also. Oh, absolutely. And, in, and even in Uruguay, I think. Absolutely. And I have to say, you know, while I feel like I definitely wanted to plumb what is here a very Argentinian story and a, a country that is one of my nations of origin along with Uruguay, I've also come to really understand how much these are really global and universal themes about how we grapple with the long-term intimate effects of mass violence and I was just on book tour throughout the nation with this book Perla and I had people talk to me about making connections between what they read in the book and their experiences with their own homelands of Bangladesh and the Philippines and the Dominican Republic and this book sort of helped them uh, see their own national legacies and new lights. Well what's so wonderful about this book is that there is there is hope at the end of the total there is redemption 
at the end, a way that we can go forward after such terrible things that have happened and unfortunately such terrible things that still happen. I'm so glad that you say that because I I really hope that that is the case with this book because even though the book really does uh, address some very, you know, painful and difficult social realities and and I think it's important to uh, look at those in an unflinching way when you write a novel about it because the survivors of those real stories deserve that level of recognition and respect. At the same time, I really do see this book as, in a way, a love story about the the resilience and love and human strength that that happens every day um, as people overcome incredible, incredible obstacles and um, push past incredible social injustices to uh, continue to love and continue to affirm their connections with each other. Carolina, I would like you now to read us a little of this amazing book. Thank Please. you. Thank you for saying that, and uh, I'd be honored. I'll begin with the very first page of the book. That's how I got started. That's how I got hooked. That's how I stayed up all night. Oh, good. <laughs> well, we'll start there then. Start at the beginning. Some things are impossible for the mind to hold alone. So listen, if you can, with your whole being. The story pushes and demands to be told, here, now, with you so close and the past even closer, breathing at the napes of our necks. He arrived on the 2nd of March, 2001, a few minutes after midnight. I was alone. I heard a low sound from the living room, a kind of scrape, like fingernails on unyielding floor then silence. At first, I couldn't move. I wondered whether I had left the window open, but no, I had not. I picked up the knife from the counter, still flecked with squash, and walked slowly down the hall toward the living room with the knife leading the way, thinking that if it came to fighting, I'd be ready. I'd stab down to the hilt. I turned the corner, and there he lay, curled up on his side, drenching the rug. He was naked. Seaweed stuck to his wet skin, which was the color of ashes. He smelled like fish and copper and rotting apples. Nothing had moved. The sliding glass door to the backyard was closed and intact. The curtains were unruffled, and there was no damp trail where he might have walked or crawled. I could not feel my limbs. I was all wire and heat. The room crackled with danger. You just heard Carolina de Robertis reading from her new novel, Perla. And then what happens? Can you read further? Okay. So the strange man appears in Perla's house, and there's a sort of slow collision between them as they unfold their relationship. And he begins to remember who he was, this mysterious stranger, and that he's actually the ghost of someone who disappeared in the 70s. So this is one of the memories that comes to him. The day the black boots came for him was a pretty day, with bright blue slices of sky between the buildings. He remembers now the cafe he went to on his way home. It was halfway between the office and his apartment. It was beautiful and ordinary, with ivory walls, bitter coffee, little cookies. People walked sharply outside the window. It was just another cup of coffee to him then, and just another window. He was tired. 
He had stayed up too late fighting with Gloria about a stupid thing, the apartment, something about the apartment, whether or not they should move and what they would do with the apartment if they did, though he couldn't remember what had raised the question about moving, where they would go and why. All he knew was that her mouth was pursed in profile. She turned and showed her shoulder blades. They didn't touch and sleep that final night. What an idiot not to have touched her. He dreaded going home, the chance that she was still angry, the dance step of apologies, and so he stopped for coffee. The coffee came with little almond cookies, not the butter ones today. What a shame. He remembers. He tastes the coffee and the almond cookie, tinged with his petty disappointment. Then home. He turned the key and pushed the door open, and there was Gloria, bound to a chair, blindfolded, still as a doll. The first fist sent him to the floor, and he stayed there. There were many of them, dozens, a dozen boots around him in his ribs, kicking, speaking. The boots were speaking. They wanted to know things, but he couldn't speak. Blood filled his mouth. A hand caught his hair, lifted him from the ground. Then came a fist, and he was down again, sinking in a vortex of men. He understood that they had come for him. It was his turn. He would be gone. Gloria was right about people being taken, and he wished that he'd believed her, held fiercely to this wish as though believing her could have staved off this moment. There was red in his eyes, wet copper in his mouth, two teeth floating across his tongue like hidden shipwrecks, and Gloria was pleading, please don't hurt him. Shut up, Gloria. A slap and then a cry. That's right, darling, he thought. Don't say a thing. Sit still until it's over and then maybe they won't take you. Please shut up. She didn't shut up and they weren't done. And he was on the floor and pulled up and back down again. They wanted to know where Caraselli was, but he had never known a Caraselli. It was no use. The hood came over his head. The room went quiet. By now, it was the middle of the night. He was rolled into a carpet. He was carried down the stairs of his apartment building past neighbors' doors that did not open. Everybody seemed to know to keep their doors closed on such nights. And then he was in the footwell of a car that drove and drove and drove and drove, and that, he now remembers, is how he disappeared. Wow. Beautifully read and wonderfully written. Thank you so much, Nina. Then what happens? Well, we continue um, to unfold the relationship between Perla, this young woman who is the daughter of someone who was involved with perpetrating these crimes against the people of Argentina and who has long struggled with that part of her identity. Um, and so, of course, this 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 ghost of a disappeared is bringing all of that up. And so she goes into her own memories as well. This is a memory um, that Berla has of being six years old and getting her first glimpse of this, uh, this history that is unspoken in her home. Perla, Perlita, my mother said, don't believe the lies about the disappeared. You're going to hear things in school, and I'll tell you now that they're not true, Perlita. These people are hysterical. They don't understand a lot of things. Don't say anything to them. Just stay quiet, and remember, they're confused. 
I nodded then, and my tight braids brushed against my dress. Mama smiled at me, helped me into my coat, and gave me a hug. As always, I wanted the embrace to last longer, so I could dissolve into my mother's soft blouse and bright perfume. But the touch was perfunctory, a means to an end, delivered in the rush of a busy morning. Mama loved me very much, but she had many things to think about and very nice clothes that should not wrinkle so early in the day. I was six years old. The democracy was about to turn one. And yes, there were people now who clearly did not like navy men like Papa. Romina Martinez's uncles had been gone for seven years, or so she told me in the coat room at school. There are many people like that, she'd whispered. Many people who never came home in the bad years. Her grandmother still marched in the plaza downtown every Thursday, wearing a white scarf over her head, so that her uncles would return. But Romina said, taking off her green galoshes, Mama said that's crazy. They won't come back because they're dead. I said nothing to this because I was a good girl. But later, weeks later, one night after homework, I asked my own Mama about it. Where are Romina's uncles? Will they come back? Mama sighed. She was holding a scotch and she swayed it back and forth so that the ice cubes chimed against the glass. Who knows? Where are they? They probably went off to live lazy lives in Paris. I felt sorry for Romina then, with her hand-me-down galoshes and her grandmother wandering the plaza, and uncles too lazy to come home. She did not have a mother like mine, the kind that had her nails done every week and wore imported French scarves that draped across her collar like bright plumes. Mama had beauty all around her. Papa was a strong man who arrived home in the evenings with his uniform still pressed, and I was a lucky girl to have parents like these. Wow! And there's more to come. And then what happens? Perla, this young Argentinian woman we just heard from, grows up. And at the age of eighteen, and she's beginning college, she begins a love affair. Her very first boyfriend、um, is a man called Gabriel, who is not only older but also a journalist who writes exposés about the disappeared and about the attempts to bring perpetrators、uh, from the military regime to trial. He's very much a、uh, person on the left, you know, concerned with social. Justice issues, and somehow she's drawn to him, even though that means that she has to live a double life, in which she is so ashamed of her father's identity as a member of the military that she hides it from him for a year. So I'm going to read from a moment where she has just told him for the first time who her father is, and they get into a very big fight. We went to the party, and afterward we came back to his apartment and stood in the light of one dim lamp, staring at each other, like two jaguars in the jungle, quiet, drunk. He looked at me as though he'd never seen me before, as though I had just broken into his home. I wanted to run, but I could not tell whether the impulse was to run away or run toward him. I longed to say, but did not say, so many things. I am not my father, and when will I ever be free of this? And mea culpa, mea culpa, mea culpa. 
but the words were impossible to my mouth, and my eyes did all the speaking. His eyes spoke back, and not only spoke, but shouted, and I thought that he might strike me, but instead he kissed me brutally. I crushed against him. I let him strip me down to nothing, and I pressed my nakedness against him with all the ferocity of a demon straining for deliverance. I pulled him to the floor and into me, brashly, savagely, our first time. We made sounds like people fighting for our lives. Such pain, so round and swift, whirling through my body, carrying specks of pleasure on its back. I did not want it to stop. I wanted it to lash through me forever. Afterward, I heard him weeping softly. He was beside me on the floor, his face half buried in my hair. I crawled over to the lamp to turn it off and then returned and cradled him in the dark until the tears were gone and he was limp against me, wrung out, open. Then, gently, we began again. You've been listening to Carolina de Robertis reading from her new novel, Perla. Catalina, this is fascinating, and you're reading so well. Could you continue, please? Thank you so much. Um, this next moment is, an, is a scene between Perla and her father. It was very important to me, I'll just say, in this book, to uh, not only capture and convey the stories of those who disappeared and the loved ones they left behind in Argentina in the 70s and 80s, but also to really try to tell the full story of a national tragedy like this one, which meant creating a, a human portrait of perpetrators, of people who were involved with these crimes, and to try to really look at the full human cost of these kinds of historical moments. So in this scene, Berla's father has been going through a process where he's drinking a great deal because a friend of his just came out on national television and talked about uh, his role in the disappearances. And Perla is now with her father late at night. He is drunk and he's getting the closest that he might get to a sort of confession with her. He poured himself another glass. When he spoke again, he sounded more at ease. He was quite drunk. We were the ones restoring order. For years and years, this country had no order. You have no idea what a terrible place this country was before. It needed to be saved, and people knew it. They even asked for it. Now they criticize. Well, you know what? Forget them. They talk about the suffering of the prisoners. But what about our suffering? Forget the lot of them. He leaned back in his chair, away from the low sphere of light, his back approaching the wall of plaques behind him. I stayed very still, just like when I was a little girl and he would come into my bedroom late at night to stroke my hair and turn a bar song into a lullaby, with a voice as gentle and meandering as lazy waves on a warm day his hand like raw cotton along my scalp, and I always feared that if I moved too much, he'd go away and I'd be in the dark without his songs. Somewhere in the far folds of the cosmos, there might be a script that held the right responses to his words, the way a father-confessor intimates the next lines in a penitent's dialogue with God. But I had no access to this, 
I was not a confessor, and in any case, my father had expressed no penitence. My voice seemed to have vanished from my throat. I just did my job, my father said. I carried out orders, like anybody else. Then he wept. At first, I did not recognize the sound, hoarse and stifled as it was. The sobs did not come freely. They pushed under the surface of short, heavy breaths. He sounded like a man with a fresh bullet wound, desperate to keep quiet, battling to contain the pain. I did not look over at him. I did not move. I could not have moved even if I'd wanted to. My legs had frozen in their curl beneath my body and there was no hope of running, not toward him and not away. I did not cry. I felt as though I'd never be able to cry again, as though my father's tears had robbed me of my own. After a long time, the sounds abated. We sat in silence. Go to sleep, he finally said. And then he was gone. Carolina, thank you so much. Those were just marvelous readings. Wonderful. How can listeners get the book? Well, the book is available now. Uh, it should be at your local independent bookstore. The many wonderful bookstores we have certainly here in the Bay Area um, have all been really fabulous about stocking them. But they are also it's also available for order or anywhere online. So that Perla, P-E-R-L-A, by Carolina de Robertis. And is it usually found under a D or under an R? It's usually found under a D. Occasional people make the mistake of putting it under R. It happens when you have a two-word last name. But I should also say it's available on audiobook, and I had the pleasure of recording it myself this time, which was really a great deal of fun. And your reading is so excellent. So thank you so much. It's been a pleasure having you here, Carolina de Robertis. You've been listening to my interview with Carolina de Robertis about her wonderful book, Perla. And now to continue with the historical literature theme, I'm going to be reading to you from my series of poems called California Missions Before the Fandangos and Zorro, There Was This, based on a play performed by schoolchildren at the Peralta House, San Leandro, California, 2007. On a visit to the historic Peralta House in San Leandro, California, I view museum artifacts of the first people of this land. Right before my eyes, the visiting schoolchildren of today perform a play, donning the costumes of Ohlone Indians, mission priests, and Presidio soldiers. Before my eyes, the past emerges and speaks to me through these bright, new, young voices. The Spanish Soldier a ration of chocolate tucked into my backpack we brought up from Mexico for a drink around the campfire before or after a bloody massacre or a long march of scratching bramble, mud, and stinging bugs. The Mission Ohlone Girl 
walking and pushing the grinding stone and pulling weeds, then chopping and peeling to make the meals from dawn to dusk, remembering that I once used to play chasing playmates and butterflies, hearing the rooster's chorus even in my dreams. The Spanish Mission Priest The more I learn of their language, the more troubled I am by their questions, prayers, complaints, and rebellions. Only yesterday, another crude altar was found behind our sacred altar, calling to their pagan deities for a healing to stop the plagues killing their people. They say we brought the dreaded red spot fevers and pain, followed by the endless trail of death. O oh Lord, pray for them now and in the hour of our deaths. Amen. The New Mission Ohlone Father My wife birthed the son this morning before dawn. I see his gentle eyes startled by the light. I feel his silent look pierce my soul with an arrow of love that I know can never be removed. His fist so little, black hair matted on his large head. I wonder what he thinks of me. His glance is so accepting of all he sees without judgment. The priest calls him Sebastian because he's born on his saint's day. But to me... He is racing wind, because I want to fly away from here to our people's home and freedom. The Dying Ohlone Woman I hear him screaming from their whiplash. Will this be the last sounds in my ears? How I wish I could hear the flapping of the seagulls or the cawing on the shore, or the sound of the oak pod spilling on the soft ground from my mother's basket after she ground the acorns. The ground I long to walk on again, but I can hardly even sit up to sit water. I can feel myself burning away. I cannot get away, away, away before the breath leaves. Yesterday, my sister died. We are dying of their sickness. Soon my heartbeat will stop aching, stop yearning for freedom. Stop beating. The Liberator There is always one who is many, gathering to plan an escape back to freedom. Freedom of the hunt, the gathering of reeds for baskets and berries for lunch, the songs, the familiar ceremonies, healings and prayers of free people, not slaves to work and more work. A strange language in unpleasant ways, free to shout and dance the joy of mornings, moons marking our moments. We leave tonight, and if they come after us, they will meet traps and tricks and deadly arrows. The school field trip is over. The children end their play. Shed the costumes, running off to the present, back to their school uniforms in the 21st century. They know this genocide is the legacy of the land. But their energy for games and lunch in the present moment sends them racing for the ever-waiting yellow school bus that leaves, like childhood, to school.
heard me, Nina Serrano, reading from my series called California Missions. Before the Fandangos and Zorro, there was this. Cover to Cover, Open Book, Poet to Poet series. I've been your host, Nina Serrano, and my guest has been Carolina de Robertis. And thanks for listening, and thanks to Jill Montgomery for technical direction. Saturday, July 7th, you are invited to attend the celebration of the 20th anniversary of the Cuba Caravans, which has sent humanitarian aid and challenged the U.S. embargoes. 6 p.m. potluck dinner, 7 p.m. program starts. Dave Welsh and others will provide music. Tamara Hansen, a current caravanista, will speak. Visionaries Reverend Lucius Walker, George Freeman, Daniel Del Solar, and other workers for solidarity will be remembered. This wheelchair-accessible benefit for Pastors for Peace takes place at Redwood Gardens Community Room, 2951 Derby Street in Berkeley. Five to ten dollar donation requested. For more information, visit ifco forward slash pastorsforpeace.org.